Hey, Austin Oaks Church family, Pastor Brandon here. So glad that you are with us to hear the word of the Lord and just worship together. Um, if you are visiting with us, or you're checking this out, or somehow you happen to find this stream online, we are honored. We feel privileged that you would welcome, welcome us into your lives. Um, a little bit about who we are. We strive to be simply about Jesus. We believe that when you encounter him, it changes everything. And that's why we strive to help everybody meet, know, and follow Jesus. I'm excited for this message specifically because we are moving into a brand new series. And it's very fitting, specifically in the week and the weeks to follow, um, to be looking at whose kingdom is this really? We're going to be looking at a sermon series called Yours is the Kingdom. And the heartbeat of this is just to remember that Jesus is on his throne and to come back again as the church and to be reminded as to what our purpose is, how we should see things, how we should approach things, how we should relate to things that are happening around us. So some of the questions we're going to try to answer in this series are things like how to live knowing that this is God's kingdom. How to live knowing that it's his kingdom ultimately. How to live knowing that we are called to live in a home that is not really our real home. How to live in a land that is so unlike the values of the kingdom of God. And how to live with hope, humility, and wisdom in order to point people to Jesus. We're going to tackle some of these topics. And it's going to be um, confrontational. It's going to be hopeful. It's going to be a challenge to humility and wisdom. But I'm really asking for us as the church to be reminded again that we are a people who are sent by God. We are exiles in this world. That is so important for us to remember. Now, before I get into the intro, I just want to hit two things real quick, because this is an important week in our nation, and it's an important week for us as a church. We are called to pray for our leaders. So on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're gathering as a church. We're going to do this in our own homes and online, all that kind of stuff. I want to encourage you to pray to fast, pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for the welfare of our nation and our city, our regions, our schools, our families, our businesses. At the end of the day, we want you to pray. Pray, because we do believe that when we pray, God moves. Also, this morning is communion uh, Sunday, so if you need to just quickly hit pause or you can get up, walk, get juice or whatever it is that you need to take for communion and a cracker or whatever. And so we're going to celebrate communion a little bit later. Now, the majority of the series, we're going to be going through a little bit of Daniel because I can't think of another story that is more pertinent to the culture that we live in. But I want to set the scene for you, and I need you to kind of imagine with me, okay? So when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken or kidnapped, better words, um, from Jerusalem, they were teenagers more than likely. You got to imagine what that would have been like to be ripped away from your home. Imagine like maybe you're just having dinner with your family. You're all reclined on the floor around this makeshift table and you're about to give praise and pray, uh, thanks to God for his provision for you. And the next thing you know, you feel like the walls of your home, the, the hut that you're living in are starting to shake and maybe some debris and uh, straw has fallen from the roof. And you start hearing screams and commotion and, and you just hear the clanging of metal and, and the hoofs and you can just start to hear people screaming and shouting and you don't know what's going on. And you, your dad maybe goes outside the door to ask the neighbor, hey, what's happening? And they say, they're here. And, and you maybe are like, okay, let's try to escape. And you try to get out and it's too late because your whole city is surrounded. Around this time when Daniel was captured, 
It was about 605 BC in Babylon is the new up-and-coming nation. They're the ones who are now going to be the world power. They, they wiped out Assyria. Assyria is never to be heard of again. Egypt goes limping back home, licking their wounds, because right now there's a new number one in the land. And in the ancient Near East, if the nation was the most powerful nation, that also meant that their God was the strongest God. It was a powerful deity proclamation. If Babylon is the world power, that means their God is the one who rules and reigns. You got to imagine this scenario. You got to imagine what it'd be like all of a sudden to see your city, the promised land of God, your people to be ripped out, kidnapped, exiled, four month journey. It would have taken Daniel four months to walk to Babylon. Imagine the thoughts going through his head. Will I ever see my family again? What if he had siblings? Will I ever see them again? whole way of life is about to change he's about to be planted in a home that is not like his home in a value system that is not like his value system in a in an area where they openly worship satan any false religion is satanic this story is a powerful story and i think there are a lot of principles that we can glean from this passage that will speak into how we live and how we thrive in the land that we are called to live in now i know friends i know in a few short days we're going to be voting and who knows what's going to happen who knows but it doesn't change anything jesus is on the throne we know whose kingdom it's um, ultimately is it's it's his kingdom and that's why as christians we pray we pray for his kingdom to come because we remind ourselves when we worship him that yours is the kingdom and that's what we need to remind ourselves we are ambassadors we are sent and a lot of times we fail to remember that we're called to bloom where god has planted us and he has planted us in this time in this place in this very year and so what does that mean for us as a church? So let's look at this real quick. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 1 and look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I want to highlight that word besieged for a moment. Besiege uh, a city, siege warfare is a strategic and a very, very effective strategy. And we see this a lot of times back in those days because a lot of these cities had huge walls and fortifications around. And if they were able to surround the city, they were able to apply pressure, uh, enough pressure over time to finally get them to come out either to fight, which they would be in a weakened state if they were, or just to simply capitulate and surrender. I mean, they would cut off the gate. And a lot of times the commerce and, and the welfare and the produce and all this stuff that would happen from the city comes from outside of the walls. They only have so much inside. And they would siege them for a long time, applying pressure. It could be months, starving them out, sanitation issues. Imagine the fear and the dread and the hopelessness and just the anxiety that comes knowing that this massive army is sitting outside of you. When Babylon came, and besieged Jerusalem. It was 10,000 upon 10,000 soldiers, chariots, horses, nowhere to run. And they just sat there. What do you do? What do you do? 
And the whole idea of this strategic military endeavor is to weaken the hearts of those within, to get them to capitulate, to get them to surrender, keep applying pressure, keep applying pressure. Jerusalem was a big deal. We cannot underestimate this. It was the heart and soul of the religion. It was where God's temple was. It was where God's promised presence was going to be, that if they were to call upon his name there at the temple, God would hear them and all that kind of stuff. It was the heartbeat of the religion. It's where they did their sacrifices and everything. And now God's people are going to be taken away, Jerusalem captured. And we know that the walls were ransacked, the temple was destroyed, all that kind of stuff. What was going through their minds? Now, real quick, I want us to contextualize this because I think we feel this. Doesn't it feel like Christianity is being besieged? Like, doesn't it feel like there's outside pressures slowly surrounding our faith and our value systems, applying pressure slowly, slowly, slowly to get us to capitulate, to finally surrender and conform to the ways of this world? I mean, I, I hear it all the time. Specifically, we hear it a lot in election season. Well, America is a Christian nation. It's not like what it used to be and all this kind of stuff. Like, it may or may not have been a Christian nation at the beginning. I think there's, there's proof that it was, but it probably isn't right now. The culture is shifting. It's applying pressure. There's an army, a movement, a system, a government, education, curriculum, outside voices, cancel culture, all of these things that are trying to apply pressure on Christianity. Christianity is oftentimes being besieged. So what do we do? Do we just kind of like muscle ourselves up and try to pick a fight? Get them and apply a lot of pressure to get them to support our values when the culture really has no regard for our value system as we, in fact, if we were honest, we wouldn't either unless the spirit was inside of us. Or do we just finally surrender and give in and conform? Now, this is a big deal. Just the other day, I mean, Chris and I, my wife and I were talking about schools and processing what our middle schooler is going through, the curriculum that they're engaged with. It's tough. I mean, everything inside of us wants to like just hide out within our walls, to not confront it, to not just to shelter, but build a bomb shelter, get a bunch of water and protect her at all costs. Like we don't want her to face that. But that's not the way that God has actually called us to live. He's called us to be in the world, but not of the world, to not conform it to it, not to capitulate to it, and at the same time to not just simply ride against it. So how do we go about doing this? Is there a third way? Instead of just fighting and, and picketing and protesting and shouting and being mad at everything else around us, we got to remember that we, don't ex we shouldn't expect them to be like us, the church, that hold the same values. We're called to be different. So is there a third way? Make no mistake, Christianity is being besieged, and it's been like this ever since the very beginning because culture isn't our enemy. Satan and his demonic forces are our greater enemy. They're the ones who form that culture. It's been this way from the very beginning. And God has a plan. And what we see in Daniel will help us understand what that third way is. And I'm going to be honest with you. When we look at the way of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, and 6, it will actually make us maybe question his commitment to God just by the way he approaches it the way he does certain things. But that's just surface level. But we know that below 
the way he approached it, the way he lived faithfully to God and still served and honored and showed respect to those around him is really the way of Jesus. So let's be crystal clear. Christianity is being besieged, no doubt about it. But as long as Jesus is on the throne, we have absolutely no reason to panic. We begin to panic when we forget who's on the throne. We begin to panic when we fail to remember what our ultimate mission is. It is so tempting to look at the present reality around us, our present circumstances, situations, and to lose hope. The last month or so, just looking at everything that's happening in our world, in our nation, man, there's moments where I just want to give up. There's moments where I feel like my hope is flickering out. There are moments where I wonder, God, why don't you show up? God, where are you in all of this? There's moments when it feels like our God is losing. I, I, I know it's not true, but I feel that way sometimes. And can you imagine how these guys felt? I mean, Jerusalem is the heart. It's the promised land. It's where God's promises were to be fulfilled. It was all there. And now they're being forced out of there to see that city destroyed. God, where are you? Where is God in this? I mean, what do you do with those things? Like, how do we make sense of all the stuff that's happening in our nation and still try to tell people that God is love, which he is. 1.1 million deaths due to COVID around the world, as far as we know. The hate in the streets, hate in the homes, in our country, senseless violence, rapes, murders, abuse, drug overdoses, abortions, racism. Where's God in all of these things? The world would say to us to try to get us to capitulate, your God is weak. This is all proof that there isn't a God of love. Go ahead and believe in God if you want. Go ahead and do your church thing. We'll let you still have it. You can have it as your crutch. Those outside of the walls of Christianity, they go, this is, this is proof that there is no good God, that there is no God of love. Have you ever felt that? That's part of siege warfare. But it really doesn't make any sense. Now hang with me for a moment. If there's a lot of guys who have really long beards, that's not proof that there are no barbers. If there's a bunch of cars that are broken down, that's not proof that there are no auto mechanics. <laughs> Just the fact that we see a broken world that's spinning completely out of control, that's not proof that there's no God. I would actually argue the opposite. It's proof that people have chosen to not return back to God. And God has sent his son to rescue and redeem that world. And the church is part of that vehicle. And the people of Israel were always part of that vehicle to show people God's heart. And that is no different in this story. The church, listen, listen to me clearly. We as a church, we are placed here in our context in this time, in this brokenness, in this confusion, in this hurt, in this specific time for a reason to show off Jesus to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus, to be saved, to be redeemed and transformed, to save families, those who are stuck in addictions. Like this is why we're here. And we shouldn't be surprised that the culture is going the way it's going. 
We shouldn't be surprised at all. Jesus is still on his throne. The kingdom is still his. And we are here as his ambassadors. And that's why this story is so important for us this morning. Babylon. We cannot downplay the significance of Babylon. Like, it's so easy for us to think that our time and place is so wicked and so evil and things were way much better way back then in the good old days, all that kind of stuff. No, that, that's just simply foolish thinking. In fact, one of the Proverbs even actually exhorts us to not think about, oh, everything was better in the past because that's not wisdom. Babylon in the scriptures is described, and you can look this up, Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon is described as the personification of evil. Like when angels talk about evil, they don't talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. They talk about Babylon. Babylon is the personification of evil. It's the chief example of what evil is. Okay? Don't lose sight of that. I need you to grab hold of this because otherwise a lot of these things just aren't going to make sense and land. When Nebuchadnezzar raided Jerusalem, they went into the temple and they stole like the holy things, the vessels, the articles of God, and they set them up in a demonic temple. Like that is one of the greatest ways to mock and to ridicule God. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar did. The state curriculum, the state sanctioned religion is demonic. Straight up demonic. Astrology, astronomy, they would study the occult, magic, spells. Like this is what they force. And we're going to see that they force these among, on these young men. Daniel and his three friends, they were kidnapped from Jerusalem. And one of the ideas that Nebuchadnezzar had was we want to assimilate the culture of Israel so that they would become Babylonians. And so they took the cream of the crop of the young men and probably even some young women and they kidnapped them from Jerusalem and started to enculturate them indoctrinate them, put them into a three-year curriculum to learn all of the new education systems, the institutions, the, the magic, the occult, the worship. They wanted them to think like them, to dress like them, to talk like them, to process like them, to value like them. I mean, like we, we see this. It's, it's wide open, okay? In, in verse four, they took the youth without blemish in order to teach them, right? They teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, and they tried to, we're going to talk about this next week, even to change their diets. They renamed them. That's a big deal. And our culture names only have a limited amount of meaning. They don't make a big deal like they were back then. But Daniel's name was basically God is my judge. And his name was changed to Belshazzar, which means Bell's prince. In other words, you are now a prince of Satan. Imagine that. For 70 years, because he's been exiled in Babylon. He will be exiled there for 70 years. And he's called over and over and over, hey, Prince of Satan. Hey, Prince of Satan. We know, like we, we in psychology teaches this, that what we call people, especially around those formative years, around being a young teenager, really influences how they see themselves. And names were important. Daniel, God is my judge, name changed to Bell's Prince. This is an identity change. And not only that, and I'm not trying to be crass, but it, it's part of the story. Strongly implied that all the males that came from Jerusalem who were kidnapped were castrated. 
made to be eunuchs. They erased their gender because uh, otherwise they could be a threat to the king. Daniel was forced to study the occult and to serve an evil king. New education, new name, new identity, removed from God's influence. Babylon is a personification of evil. This is a horrible situation. No way around it. And here's the question that we need to ask. How do they survive this? How do they survive this? How do they live faithful? Do they just give up hope? Mope, depressed, full of anxiety and pessimism for 70 some years? Or did how they see God significantly influence how they saw their time there? That's the key. They knew who was in control of who's in control. Yours is the kingdom. Jesus is on the throne and he's in control of who's ultimately in control. God, what if he designed this to happen? What if he had a greater purpose in this? Let's look at verse two. Now, real quick for contextual um, understanding, Daniel wrote this at the end of his life. So he's looking back. And when he wanted to make known a very clear point, he, he makes it clear right in the very beginning that he goes, I understood who did this. Look at verse two. And the Lord gave. Don't skip that little line th- uh, pass real quickly. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This messes with my theology. I, I don't know about you, but this one, this is tough. So you're saying Jerusalem was where God's presence was. Right, God's people, the apple of his eye, and yet now we read that God gave Jerusalem over to Babylon, the personification of evil. How do we make sense of this? How can we even say that like God is love and God is good and he handed them over to the personification of evil? That makes absolutely no sense. How could God allow this to happen? Listen, Daniel understood something that we need to understand in order to live faithfully where God has placed us. He makes crystal clear from the very beginning, God is in control of who is in control. Even though we are here, that doesn't change God's sovereignty. It doesn't change God's purposes. In fact, when we live in a very evil time and we just feel like evil is winning and God is in losing and the culture is just taking the articles of God and putting them up in some demonic place or whatever it is I'm contextualizing here. Like it can feel like God is not as big as our modern day Babylon. Like Babylon is larger, it's winning, God is losing and we don't know what to do. We might as well just give up. How could God do this? I want you to understand this. Daniel's understanding of God's sovereignty was the linchpin to how he thrived in Babylon. If you don't understand God's sovereignty, none of Daniel will make sense for us. It just can't. In church, we need to come back to this because we struggle with this. When we don't understand God's sovereignty, it's very hard for us to make sense of evil. When we don't understand God's sovereignty, it's very hard to make sense of all the present events around us because we just think it's all about us. But God's people are always a sent people. And we are sent here to this place and this time. God's, Daniel's view of God's sovereignty was the absolute linchpin. 
I mean, we look at Daniel chapter 221, and he says it again. He's like, God, he's the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. God is in control of it all. And this gave Daniel great hope and perspective. It allowed him to be farsighted rather than nearsighted. And yeah, absolutely, there are still things that happened where we wonder God, why God allowed it to happen. Daniel surely did, I'm willing to bet. Even Shadrach, Meshach, and Medical are probably like, I don't know why God would do this. But it didn't change the fact that God was in control. It didn't change the fact of how they saw God as sovereign, that it's his kingdom. God is never shaken. God, God is never surprised or all of a sudden caught off guard by the current events. And if you're watching this pre-election, Whatever happens November 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, or whenever we find out, God's not surprised. According to Daniel chapter 2, 21, God's the one who's putting that ruler in place for his purposes and his plans. God has a strategy, and his strategy is to redeem and save a lost and dying world. And God's word will always do exactly what it's set out to do. Nothing can thwart it. So we need to ask the question, why did Babylon happen to these folks? God had something going on. And we got to look backwards in order to understand this. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And I, I would say this is one of the passages that is oftentimes used out of context. And a lot of times churches will use this verse to try to motivate a church to a grand vision. And they'll say, look and be amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you got to see to believe. Oh, let's get excited. But if we read the context, that's not actually what you want to hear. Habakkuk starts in verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's making his case against his own people. This is Israel. Why are you letting, why are you, he, Habakkuk is a prophet. He's like, why are you allowing me to look upon all of this sin and iniquity and this injustice? Like, what are you doing? And God answers Habakkuk. He says in verse five, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. You want to know why? Because what he's going to tell him next is an absolute shock. It, it, it is like a bomb that has never been dropped before. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwelling in Israel. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce, etc., etc., etc. They're coming for you. I'm going to punish my old people with the personification of evil. I'm going to purify my people. I'm going to discipline my people. They say the right words. They do the right things, but they're hard or far, far from me. I've warned them over and over and over that it's about me. It's about me. It's not about you. Don't go about your own way. Don't worship whatever you want. I'm the Lord, your God. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one that pulled you to myself. Obey me. Listen to me. Because if you don't, I'm going to have to do this. There's always going to be a reaping of what you sow. Habakkuk hears this. 
And he doesn't even know what to make sense of this. He even replies, he's like, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? Like, like my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, has established them for reproof. You are a pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked is going to swallow up the ones that are more righteous than he? And he goes, I'm going to stand my guard and wait to see what you would say. <laughs> he couldn't understand it, that God would allow that to happen. God is making it very clear. I need to discipline my own to purify them, to bring them back to me. And yes, even though it seems like a short-term win, which is all it is for Babylon, I'm going to deal with them. You don't worry about them. You worry about you. God is doing a work in his people during this time. In fact, in the 70-some years, 72 years roughly, given the travel, there's three national revivals that happen during that time. In the great darkness of Israel in this exile, there was some bright light that God had specific designs for. And even prophets, when this news was coming in Jeremiah 29, there's prophets saying, no, that won't happen. That's not, God wouldn't do that. God's not like that. And God had to speak through Jeremiah saying, don't listen to them. They're not sent for me. They're liars. They're deceiving you. We have a, we have a rather weak theology of suffering. Like, Who's to say that God couldn't be using these moments and the circumstances in our country and our world to purify and prune his church? What, what if he's doing that? I mean, honestly, for us who follow Jesus, we need more than just high moral standards to survive in Babylon. We need way more than just good intentions to thrive in our modern-day Babylon, we need Jesus. And if that means he needs to purify us individually and purify the church, so be it. And I'm not saying that this is what's happening. I'm just saying it, God knows what he's doing. He's not surprised by any of this. In fact, New Testament authors would even argue or agree with this. In 1 Peter 1, 6, even though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, the tested genuineness of faith, of your faith, which is of more precious value than gold, will be found in a result of praise. Like God tests us. He purifies us. We're his bride. And God's discipline to his children, to his church, is God's mercy. God's intervention is his mercy. Like when you get convicted of sin, that's God's mercy and grace to you. That's his goodness to you. And when God uses things in culture to shake up the church, to purify the church, that's God's intervening mercy and grace. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. Have we compromised our faith? Like when we read the words of Jesus, do we follow that radical call to carry our cross, to love our neighbors and our enemies, to give for the sake of others? Like do we, or have we compromised and made Christianity a little bit more of a narcissistic religion where it's all about me, my comfort and my things and my blessings and I'm getting a little riled up right now because I am being threatened that I might lose my blessings and my rights and my privileges. Uh, friends, listen, you have every spiritual blessing in Jesus 
And nothing can take that away. Nothing. We just got to remember how to live in this time and in this place because the kingdom is his. God warned them that if they don't change, if they don't repent of their selfish, narcissistic ways of oppressing people and downplaying God and watering down all of those things and mocking his sacrifices, that God would send Babylon to punish them, to discipline them. But he also promised them that after 70 years, I will redeem you. I have plans for you and a purpose for you. And that's one of those passages that we love to recite. Like, for I know the plans and purposes I have for you to make you prosper and stuff. That's in light of the end of the 70 years of exile in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were able to thrive in Babylon because they knew God's word. They knew these prophecies. They knew what Habakkuk said. They knew what came out of the mouth of Jeremiah. They knew the warnings. They knew Jeremiah 29. So it wasn't a total surprise to them when it happened. They, they didn't like it. They weren't applauding and saying, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm sure they wrestled and had some doubt and questions, but they stood back and said, God said it. God is still sovereign. He's still in control. So they stayed faithful. They never panicked. Daniel never ran and hide and, and shielded himself. In fact, what we're going to see next week, and it's really startling. This is where it's really hard. He didn't fight the curriculum, the three-year education, uh, education training and the occult and magic. He didn't fight it. He was a straight-A student. He didn't fight the name change. He just said, excuse me, no, 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 that's not my name. You call me Daniel. Didn't do that. But he did draw the line somewhere, and we're going to talk about that. Daniel never compromised the core convictions. He never compromised his loyalty to the Lord. But he knew how to pick his battles. He knew which hills to die on. He knew what was essential and non-essential. He knew that there was a, a greater role to play at that place and at that time. For instance, think about this. The three magi that we see at the birth of Christ, guess where they came from? They came from Babylon. Do you think maybe, just maybe, it was these 70 years that maybe Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had some influence on the Chaldeans, the Magi, about the future promise of the king? Yeah. How else do we connect those dots? Sovereignty leads to hope. When you remember God's sovereignty, it leads to hope because it leaves no room for panic or despair. I want to share with you one of the highlights of my life. And it's a great I illustration of this because I need to talk to you about the Chicago Cubs. If you are a Chicago Cubs fan, you will remember me, you will remember with me Game 7 of the World Series a few years back. The series was already intense because the Cubs haven't won a World Series since 1908. And here they are and with the dreaded curse overshadowing everything. They had to fight back in the series and they finally get to game seven and it looked like the game was theirs to lose. They had it there and you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to happen. But I'm going to be honest, as a Cubs fan, I was holding my breath because I know they always seem to let me down. 
They jumped on them in the first inning and they kept it going. But by the seventh inning, they were up six, or up six to three. Six outs left in the game. And it's right there. I'm holding my breath, expecting something bad to happen. And guess what happens? The bottom of the eighth, the Cleveland Indians, they score three runs. The game is tied six to six. Despair and panic set across Cubby Nation. We knew what was happening. We were like, it's game over. Over. Fear strikes the heart. Like for me, I was freaking out, of course. Of course, this is what happened. Where is God? <laughs> Just kidding. Sort of. But you, you get what I'm saying. They go into the extra innings. In the top of the 10th, the Cubs score two. The pendulum swings. The momentum goes into Cubs' favor. In the bottom of the 10th, the Indians score one. Crossing my fingers, hoping, hoping, hoping. And the Cubbies win. They win the World Series. Greatest moment, one of the greatest moments of my life. That Christmas, my wife bought me the greatest present I've ever got in Christmas was the DVD series of the Chicago Cubs World Series playoff win. Now, I watched game seven just because it was so awesome. I watched game seven and at the bottom of the eighth when the Indians tied the game and I saw on TV, on the screen, the crowd, the fans in the crowd. Remember when there was fans in the stadiums? I saw the despair on the faces of the crowd. I mean, like I got pictures, like, like just the fans looking like life is over, panicking, sheer panic. And I'm watching the game this time, not freaking out, enjoying the tension because I know who wins. I know the final score. That changed how I saw game seven. And that changes everything, doesn't it? That is no different than the story of God. My friends, we know the final score. We know who wins. That's why there is absolutely no room for fear and pessimism for those who love Jesus. When we look at the culture around us and when it feels like we're being besieged and it's just evil, we shouldn't give in to fear or pessimism because we already know the end of the game. We already know who wins. That doesn't mean that Daniel pretended that everything was okay. It wasn't okay. But he knew and had God's word in his heart and he knew that God was sovereign. Daniel interpreted his circumstances through the lens of faith rather than the lens of his own choosing. He stayed rooted on who God was. Yes, sometimes the enemy has short-term and temporary victories. But listen, here's how the enemy wants to work. The enemy then wants to make us believe that their current victories are proof of their eventual conquest. Do you think for a moment that the Babylonians like thought that, ah, we're not going to be that great. They thought they were going to be world rulers forever. But God had better plans. How do we stay faithful with where God has planted us? God put them there. God had a reason for them to be there. They remembered that God was sovereign. They didn't compromise. But they lived with great hope and that hope fueled their humility and that humility gave them great wisdom and how to thrive in their modern day, in their Babylon. And it's the same for us to know how we can thrive in our modern day Babylon. It's a big deal. Why were they there? They were to seek the welfare of the city. Israel is called to be a blessing to all nations, just like we are. Well, how do you do that? 
you become salt and light, you pray, you're respectful, you don't always fight. You work alongside those who aren't like you. You interact with those who aren't like you. You understand that you are merely a visitor here on this earth on mission, on purpose. So bless them. Show them God by how you live and how you act and how you talk. Be salt and light. Win them over with gentleness, respect, and humility. You don't need to protest their values. I'm not saying that it's not important. Just don't force your values on them because they live by a totally different value set. I know their values and I want you to influence them as a church. Absolutely. But don't expect them to understand how you live and the way you live and just, just respect that. Come alongside of them. Pray for them. Reflect it. Be a witness. Testify to them. Don't be surprised when they don't embrace the way you live. But seek the welfare of the city. That doesn't mean you approve everything or capitulate and surrender and just give in. No. But it does mean and it reminds us that we are here on purpose. It's in the welfare of the city that we find our welfare. God wants us to bloom where he has planted us. Look at some of these scriptures for us today. Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those are active agents. Salt has a purpose only when it's interacting with something. Light is only useful when it's dispelling the darkness. That's what it is to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. It's his kingdom. And we are here to point people to him. Look at Matthew 10, verse 16. Do you think Jesus was surprised to the world that he was sending us? He's like, no, he told him in Matthew 10, 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep. Woo, can we be a lion? Can we be some other animal? Like a sheep. I'm sending you out like sheep. Wow, that's fierce. There's a gentleness and a dependence on that animal if we understood the role of shepherding and sheep. I'm sending out a sheep in the midst of wolves, predators that love to kill you. Yeah, that's where I'm sending you. Surprise! Why, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that the world is besieging Christianity? Jesus tells us right here, I'm sending you out a sheep amongst wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You gotta be shrewd, but be gentle and respectful. John 17 Jesus, again, in his high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, I've given them your word, speaking of the disciples, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Huh. In other words, the world hates us. They hate what we stand for. They hate the kingdom of God. I ask that you don't take them out of the world. Like if, if, if Jesus wanted us out of here, we would be out of here. He's like, no, but Father, I'm praying that you don't take them out of the world, but you keep them in the world. Oh, the world that hates them. Yeah. Why? Salt and light. Purpose. It's his kingdom. We are ambassadors in his kingdom. So regardless of what happens this week and what happens in the weeks and months and years to follow, regardless if America never looks like a Christian nation again, that doesn't change anything. Jesus is on the throne and our mission to this world remains the same. 
Look at how we are to, to act and behave. In 1 Peter 1, calling us to be exiles, to make sure that we live apart from the ways of the world, apart from the sins of the flesh, but we are to keep our conduct honorable. So when they speak against us as evildoers, right, that's happening. We're, a lot of times Christians are labeled as bigots and haters and all these kind of things. Like when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Does the world see what, how you live? Are you doing good deeds of mercy and love and grace and generosity and compassion? And when they see it, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every institution, rather emperor or supreme. Submit to them, for this is the will of God that by doing good, us, the church, by doing good, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I mean, over and over and over we see this, how we are supposed to be respectful and gentle to give a good answer for the hope that we have. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 26, this is important. And a Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, tweeting and Facebooking and hashtagging and memeing and all these other things. I don't know if that's the most gentle way of trying to show off Jesus. Church, we can do better than that. The heartbeat of this is that God would perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil because they've been captured by him to do his will. Yeah, things might feel dark here, but God is still on his throne. It might look like the eighth inning. It might look like the Cubs are going to lose the World Series. Yes, I am making a spiritual connection again to the Cubs. They won. And we already know who wins. The gates of hell cannot prevail. It just, it just can't. Three things we're going to see in this. We need to live with hope. Hope is our motivation. We know who wins. We know our purpose. We know that we're sent here. We know who's in control of who's in control. Hope knows the heart of the one who is in control. Hope understands that God uses all things to work out good according to his purpose. Others might intend things for evil, but God turns it out for good. Hope refuses to despair or panic. And that hope leads us to humility because it changes how we see things and we're able to live with humility and gentleness and respect and honor to not necessarily always fight the system. Hope changes our attitudes. It seasons our talk with grace and mercy and truth. Doesn't mean we capitulate or completely compromise. We just know where to draw the line. And that's where hope leads to humility and humility gives us wisdom. We need to learn filters. We need to know which battles to fight, which hills to die on, what's essential and not essential. And we're going to see that with Daniel. There's going to be moments in his life where we're going to discover in a kingdom that's not God's kingdom, where they're like, this is the line I'm drawing. 
this I will not compromise. I'm going to encourage you now to just go grab your communion elements as we get ready to take communion. And I'm going to have Seth come up and play a little song as you guys are getting yourself and your stuff together as we celebrate communion. But what I want to say before we get into this is that, again, we can't understand our mission and our purpose unless we remind ourselves of the gospel.